Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let Them Eat Grass, a podcast dedicated to healthy farms, good food, and sustainable living. I'm Austin Williams, your erstwhile farmer and podcast host. If the past five years of farming have taught me anything, it's that everything is connected to everything else. I mean, so much of what feels out of our control is actually the direct result of things entirely within our control. Amen? I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, a local farmer whose mission it is to heal the land and nourish the community. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. I'm calling today's episode Seven Farmers You Should Know About. And these are all regenerative agriculturalists, so I think it's probably wise for all of us if we just define some terms before we start. That way we're all on the same page from now until the end. So, what is regenerative agriculture? Regenerative agriculture is farming with nature rather than against it. Farmers who work regeneratively treat nature like a dance partner rather than a sparring partner. It's mimicking on a small, human-directed scale what nature does on a large, wild scale. Regenerative farmers focus on building healthy ecosystems by replenishing the humus, which has been lost by centuries of extractive and short-sighted farming methods. Regenerative agriculturalists focus on organic matter, hydrology, mineral cycling, ground cover, and plant spacing. Not yield, weeds, disease, pests, artificial inputs, and chemicals. Now, just because you're a regenerative agriculturalist doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with weeds or disease or pests. Like, those things still happen. That's just not the focus. That's kind of like secondary to the first thing I talked about. So, I just wanted to let you guys know about seven farmers who are really change in the game as far as farming goes. And a lot of it is has to do with the way that they're marketing themselves, but they're also just doing amazing, amazing stewardship and ecological work. So the first one, some of you may know, is going to be Joel Salatin, uh, who's near Swoop, Virginia. And uh, they actually submitted me a, uh, a short description uh, for this piece. And so their description was, Joel Salatin and his family founded Polyface Farm in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, offering pastured livestock on rich lands healed from gullies and rocks. Beef, pork, chicken, turkey, rabbit, and lamb dance across the landscape in a choreography explained in Joel's 15, soon to be 16, books. Along with nutrient-dense foods, the farm offers seminars, tours, gatherings to bring healers together in fellowship and connection. Editor of the Stockman Grass Farmer, Joel's great joy is seeing happy earthworms in healthy soil. So Joel ba- Salton is basically the grandfather of of regenerative poultry agriculture in the United States. After fleeing the 1959 coup d'etat in Venezuela, the Salatins emigrated to the United States. In 1961, they purchased this gullied 550-acre farm in the Shenandoah Valley. They were among the first to use electric fences to keep their cattle confined to a specific area, but initially there was so little soil they had to use fill these used tires with cement just to give the fences something to brace against. He could walk from one side of the farm to the other without ever stepping on a blade of grass. And in a similar fashion to the East Coast, the best estimates for the Midwest are that about 
57.6 billion tons, or that's about a 1.2 feet of topsoil, have eroded in the last 160 years since intensive farming began. You know, conventional wisdom holds that an inch of topsoil takes about 500 to 1,000 years to be redeposited naturally without human intervention. But just 62 years after moving to the Shenandoah Valley, Joel and his family have laid down 12 inches of topsoil lost over centuries of previous farmers' mismanagement. That's 193.5 times faster. His family has trained thousands of aspiring farmers through their internship program. And in the process, he basically invented the North American pastured poultry movement, which my own farm used as a blueprint to get started. They also invented the marketing concept of buying clubs, or these pre-established urban customer groups that have a common meeting place to receive food purchased direct from the farm. My farm still uses this model to reach people far away with good food. You can buy their food locally or nationally through their website, Polyfacium. And by the way, some of you may remember, but I had the honor of interviewing Jewel, uh, Jewel, <laughs> Joel in 2019 for an episode on the topic of wilderness abandonment for my podcast, Let Them Eat Grass. Next one is going to be the Hitsfield family. Uh, their farm is actually called Seven Sons and is near Roanoke, Indiana. So there's actually seven brothers uh, that make up this farm, and that's why it's called Seven Sons. Um, if there's a single American farm family which fully comprehends and wields the power of the internet, it's Seven Sons. Situated on a 550 acres in central Indiana, Seven Sons has succeeded in putting the technologically challenged simplistic farmer stereotype out to pasture. They first went online in the early 2000s, directly marketing beef holes, halves, and quarters to loyal customers and blogging about their online store. And just for context, in the year 2000, there were a total of 23 blogs on the entire internet. This kind of gives you like, an idea about how ahead of the curve they were. They've managed to stay relevant in the agriculture marketing space for the past two decades. Recently, they rolled out food software called Grazecart. It's an all-inclusive e-commerce platform built by food suppliers for food suppliers. It's an online store, logistics, and website builder combined. And if that means nothing to you, it kind of feels like you're on Amazon. Like, it's just it's just very intuitive. It makes sense. Like, when you buy food, you put it in your cart. Like, it's not this, like, weird Byzantine, like, you're dusting off the cobwebs of this code that hasn't been touched in, you know, 10 years sort of website. Like, it's really, really intuitive. But it hasn't always been this promising for the Hitsfields. In the 1990s, they endured a family health crisis, and they lost about 1,000 acres of the original 1,500 they had started with in the 1980s. They were raising confinement hogs with row crops of soybeans and corn to boot. After a soil agronomist showed them the relationship between soil health and the human body, there was kind of this shared light bulb moment for the entire family in which the Hitsfields admitted that they no longer believed in the kind of agriculture system they were practicing. Fast forward to today, and the Seven Sons have become a model farm for the regenerative agriculture movement. It's a source of intergenerational prosperity for their family and a symbol of renewal and hope for the rest of us. Seven Sons really are at the top of the game uh, when it comes to agriculture marketing. They hold sustainable direct marketing workshops in their farm. I mean, who else does that? Coming from a farmer. Uh, they're also intent on streamlining the entire marketing pipeline from lead, from need to lead to search to click to sale to delivery. Uh, they actually... Uh, one of the things I thought was coolest that they did was they they just even though like you know people who own the farm like you you know you have access to where the the food is you can just you know have a honey do list and come home with whatever food you want but they actually committed to getting food the exact same way as their customers and this showed them you know what the process was actually like and how you know what what parts were annoying and what parts they needed to work on because 
you know, they had to go to the same buying clubs, you know, that the Salatons invented that everyone else did. And they actually got to the point where they had 50 different buying clubs, uh, or, you know, sprawling around Roanoke, Indiana. And they have actually made the leap now to where they don't even use buying clubs. They just do all of their meat orders via shipping. Um, so that, you know, that that's kind of the stage that they're at. No, so next one, Will Harris. Uh, he His farm is called White Oak Pastures near Bluffton, Georgia. Uh, so th- what they submitted to me for the uh, for this piece is they said, White Oak Pastures is a sixth-generation, 156-year-old family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. We take pride in farming practices that focus on regenerative land management, humane animal husbandry, and revitalizing our rural community. We know tr- radically traditional farming creates products that are better for our land, our livestock, and our village. We are fiercely proud of our zero-waste production system that utilizes each part of the animals we pasture-raise and hand-butcher on the farm. Will Harris has the bona fides of cattlemen and cattlewoman dreams. Trust me. Besides the whip, which he yields on a regular basis, he's got a thick Georgian drawl, and he looks like the inspiration for the tan 10-gallon hat perched on his head. Um, He didn't always follow regenerative principles. In 1995, he began to transition away from extractive farming methods, where his organic matter used to measure 1% and now measures over 5%. Water and mineral cycling have improved. Today, the Harrises operate their own on-farm abattoir, which is like a processor, which is a fancy word for like a slaughterhouse, which keeps transportation costs down and energy expenditures to a minimum. They're a big believer in local food systems and the revitalization of rural communities. Their farm employs around 155 people who eat shop and live in Bluffton. They're also one of the few regenerative farms which doubles as a savory hub, an honor that means, among other things, they participate in an ecological outcome verification. They take monthly samples from transects scattered around white oaks, which are like, you know, small areas of soil, to scientifically prove that their regenerative farming methods are storing carbon in the soil. So some of you might remember that I actually did a podcast with Will Harris about the Impossible Burger because him and them got into like a little bit of an internet dust up when they were starting to make this online row about how, you know, their, you know, their burger was only producing four kilograms of CO2 for every pound of plant protein versus 33 kilograms of CO2 for every pound of conventional, conventionally produced animal protein. So Will Harris is like, all right, game on. So he calls the same environmental research and design firm that did it for Impossible Burger. And he's like, hey, come to my farm, do the same thing for me. So they looked over everything. They looked over, you know, um, the, you know, the, essentially the farts of the cattle, so like like the methane emissions, the manure emissions. Um, they looked at, the, you know, the gas used for farm activities, about, you know, the transportation costs uh, of, of moving everything around. But they also looked at the soil he was creating. And they found that, not only did his regenerative farm have a lower carbon footprint than Impossible Burger, they had a negative carbon footprint. They had negative three and a half kilograms of CO2 for every kilogram of regeneratively produced animal protein. So not only were they not producing carbon, they were like essentially absorbing carbon from the neighbor's farms. That's just so cool. Um, now this is just kind of something that I've noticed Uh, is that many of the early adopters of regenerative principles in agriculture justified its application on the grounds of a biblical ethic of earth stewardship. 
And indeed, previously mentioned regenerative farmers such as um, Joel Salatin and Seven Sons, they continue in this tradition. But Will Harris is unique in the regenerative field in that he offers no such justification. As the field of regenerative agriculture secularizes, perhaps this remains beautiful. Good food is one of those rare, neutral spaces where religious and secular folk can eat at the same table and agree. Uh, as with the other two, um, you can buy his food uh, nationally or, or locally uh, on, on his website, and you should definitely check out um, the episode I did with him back in 2019. Uh, next one is uh, my, my dear, dear friend, David Boatwright, uh, who runs Fed from the Farm near Sedalia, Missouri. Um, the piece that he shared with me that he, that for this piece was, We shine a light to help others ho dare to hope for the future of the family farm, for the health of their families, for a revitalized landscape that future generations will inherit. And i got to give him props. He is the only farmer who actually stayed within the 50 to 75 character limit that I asked. So... Thank you. Everyone else gave me like 300, but you know, what, what, what can you do? Honestly, um, David Boatwright is honestly the most driven 28 year old you will ever meet. He tackles every problem with equal parts, determination, wit, scrupulousness, and abandon. Um, and it would be remiss to admit that he's also my best friend. Uh, my favorite part of, of walking the farm with him is when he, you know, spontaneously names the animals and has these impromptu conversations with them. He was the one who gave me the opportunity to manage two regenerative farms in mid-Missouri for the past five years. I mean, it was a beautiful life. Today, Fed from the Farm is the twinkle in his family's eye. Besides being a jack-of-all-trades, he employs multiple people full-time while envisioning an intergenerational farm that he can inherit to his sons. He establishes farms through sheer force of will. I mean, I remember building these broiler hoop houses with him into the freezing wee hours of the morning, um, <laughs> driving food deliveries to St. Louis uh, so that he could have Christmas celebration with his family. And then the van serpentine belt goes out. And then, you know, he has to stay on the phone to like let all of the customers know, you know, that are going to be affected by it. And he ended up, you know, had to essentially just whip out his laptop at the, at the, you know, Christmas celebration, which I felt so bad for, but like, you know, that's, that's part of the life. Um, you know, I remember sorting an entire flock of sheep in a sorting alley that was too wide and it was only cut in half by a couple of cattle panels. Uh, it was, it was rough. That was very, very rough. Um, David was actually one of the early adopters of Gray's Cart and his blend of storytelling and story branding on their software actually caught the attention of Seven Sons. His organic agriculture marketing strategy has earned him the respect of loyal customers and he's a got a top spot in Google's rankings, but you know, the outlook wasn't always this rosy. Like everyone else, he came from a conventional background, uh, but rewind to the record-breaking droughts of 2012 and young David witnessed the shortcomings of conventional agriculture. The image of desperate farmers cutting down trees just to feed their cows was seared in his brain. And after he married his wife, Mariah, in 2015, they received an infertility diagnosis, which required a partial correction of changing their diet to nutrient-dense food. And after getting food from the store, which they thought was pasture-raised, but actually wasn't, they decided to do it themselves. For David, the biblical ethic of earth stewardship is mandatory, not optional. Today, you can find David and his family on the east side of Sedalia, just past the train tracks leading out of town. They're laser-focused on stewarding the earth and nourishing families that eat of its bounty. And if you'd like their food, you can get it locally or nationally through his website. Uh, now, this is one that is just 
this farm, when I found it, I hadn't, all the other people I kind of discovered over the years, this one I kind of found recently, it's Five Mary's Farm. Um, the people who run it are Mary and Brian Heffernan. And they have five girls who, who are all named Mary, right? So that's why it's Five Mary's Farm. Um, now, Mary Heffernan, the matriarch, you know, she's always chosen entrepreneurship. She's a sixth generation Californian, but she didn't grow up on a farm. Her husband had an agricultural background, but he was an attorney when they met. She might not have grown up with stampede strings in hand, but I'd say that she's earned them by now. So let's start at the beginning. So she hosted backyard summer camps during junior to senior high, which paid for her first car and half her college house. She co-managed a farm-to-fork family-friendly restaurant with her husband, Brian, and now she co-manages a direct-to-consumer farm that sells high-quality grass-fed dry-aged beef to 8,000 customers and provides meat for the local Five Mary's Burger House. Wow. Uh, it's unique in this list because they don't actually define themselves as regenerative agriculturalists. Um, and I get it. You know, they don't want to alienate themselves from the community. And that's, that's you know, there's some people who do feel really um, not challenged per se, but you know, they, they get a little queasy because they feel like you are looking down on them or you think that they're doing it wrong. You know, they've probably been doing it longer than you. You know, I've been in a room when people make some sort of a comment that's or a sentiment that's probably meant to be taken lightly, but it's not necessarily shared by everybody about pasture-raised food, and it just makes for an awkward situation. So I get it. Um, however, uh, their animals are grass-fed, they're humanely, humanely raised, and they graze on pasture as long as the weather permits. Their cattle finish on alfalfa, um, grain hay, and steam flake barley for at least 180 days. I mean, I think there's ample space in the regenerative community for people who recognize the financial benefits of high-density rotational grazing, which is, you know, fewer inputs, less disease, better taste in meat without necessarily wanting to evangelize on its behalf. Um, instead of being, first and foremost, a regenerative farm, they're a farm who are guided by quiet regenerative principles. Um, so, uh, this, is, this, one, this guy, is, uh, he's more of a local favorite of mine. His name's Greg Judy. He has a hilarious book uh, called No Risk Ranching that I'll talk about in a little bit. His farm is Green Pastures Farm. It's near Rucker, Missouri. Um, his quote was for me, We sow future success for regenerative farmers worldwide as they set up and operate their own farms. We share our failures and successes with folks to prevent them from making costly mistakes and wasting years doing things incorrectly. Our regenerative vision is twofold, healthy farms and healthy farmers. So his book, I mean, it had me in stitches basically the whole time that I was reading it um, because he he just has this way of talking about um, <laughs> things that have happened to him on his farm when like this one time where he started, uh, he leased land. That's kind of like his big thing is leasing rather than buying land. And on this land, uh, he in like one year, he improved it so much that um, he went back to the owner and wanted to renew it. And he should have uh, gone for longer than a one-year lease, which is where it bit him in the butt. And this, this owner was like, no, no, I'm going to raise the price on you because it's worth way, way more now. And he's like, Wait, but it's only worth more because I, I did that to it. And the guy's like, nope, no can do. So he's like, all right. Um, good thing he had written into his lease that all of the fencing that he had laid down on the land was still his and that he could take up. So he then just over the course of like a night, uh, removed all of the fencing for it. And 
the owner had already contacted somebody else who wanted to graze their cows there. And the guy showed up to this land and there was like no fencing because all the fencing was still, um, of Greg's. And the owner was very, very angry <laughs> because, uh, the guy who leased the land was probably not very happy. So just some of the stories that I was just, uh, I just found really humorous. Um, in 1996, he actually had to liquidate his entire herd of cows to settle his debts. And his mindset changed when he realized that he should be making a living from the land rather than just owning it. Instead of making payments on land, he opted to lease land and buy more cows. His cow herd grew from 40 to 1,100 head. He now owns four farms and leases 12 more. Compared with other regenerative direct-to-consumer farmers on the list, Greg's uh, uniquely a farmer who markets to other farmers. He sells whole animals, not cut-ups, to other farmers looking to diversify their operations. Um, he's passionate about changing ecosystems for the better. Uh, he uses multi-speciated mob grazing to create silvopasture in the transitional zone at the edge of the timber. It's hilarious, but he invested in a sheep because it bothered him to use fossil fuels to remove something an animal would otherwise like to eat. He's such an ingrained regenerative agriculturalist, he even allows honey locusts to sprout on his farms. And coming from someone who's cut down hundreds, if not thousands of honey locusts, I respect his patience. They might have long thorns, um, but the sheep do love eating the leaves and the seed pods. And you can uh, find more about him on his website. So lastly, uh, I had to save him to, to, for the end, uh, but like no list is, is complete without talking about Alan Savory. Uh, he operates the Savory Institute near Boulder, Colorado. Um, he didn't respond uh, to me for this piece, uh, but there was you know plenty, uh, plenty on his website that allowed me um, to uh, to talk about you know what he does. He actually grew up in Zimbabwe of all things. Um, he didn't grow up in Colorado, and he was essentially the grandfather of. Uh, the regenerative agriculture movement. I know I said that Joel Salatin was, but he was like the grandfather for worldwide and for Joel Salatin. <laughs> uh, he, I mean, he's he's really um, been ev everywhere, seen uh, seen so much, and he has a, a crazy, crazy story with just how he got involved. Now, you know, there's probably going to be some movie made about him someday. He had a TED talk uh, that was what really uh, got, got him on most people's radar. But in the 1960s, um, Alan was connecting the dots between ecosystem degradation and human decision-making. Um, he wasn't some salaried university agronomist working in an air-conditioned office in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, nope. Uh, he was actually a soldier in the combat tracker unit in the Zimbabwean National Army. And his mission was to track fugitives. And his missions brought him across many different types of land, public, private, public-private partnerships, national parks, you know, etc. And no matter the legal status, he saw the same ecosystem degradation occurring everywhere. He spent lots of time looking at the ground for clues to find these people of interest. And in doing so, he discovered a relationship between animal movement and desertification. So where no animals were present, or like wilderness abandonment, desertification occurred. Where many sedentary animals were present, or high-density continuous grazing, desertification occurred. Where many mobile animals were present or like high density rotational grazing with lots of rest period in between um, grazings, ecosystems thrived. So what was the common desertification variable? Was it humanity? And because he knew archaeologically speaking, many extinction events had been recorded for large mammals after humans moved into the area. It could be that humans were to blame. 
Uh, was it the existing government? You know, tempting, but Allen saw the same degradation occurring in the 1960s Zimbabwe that he saw in 1980s West, Af uh, West Texas. No matter if the government was non-functioning or functions to meet the basic needs of its citizens, desertification was happening. Then why? I mean, considering all the failed ecological band-aids in human history, he needed to isolate the variable which remained constant throughout all times and cultures. And so drawing on the earlier work of French biochemist and farmer André Voisin, Allen's solution was the decision-making framework of holistic management. He reasoned that the one variable that remains the same across all times and all cultures is that humans make decisions about how to use the land. These decisions always have ecological, social, and fiscal dimensions. And instead of purely advocating ecological solutions, he advocated that all ecological decisions had to be socially and fiscally sound as well. If they weren't, they wouldn't be sustainable. Thus, he began advocating for high density, or like a million pounds of livestock per acre, rotational grazing of ruminant animals on semi-arid lands. Rather than treating the unconsumed tall grass with fire, which removed ground cover without replacing it, Allen said we needed to bring back the animals. They could consume the above soil carbon, or the grass, while redepositing manure as fertilizer and ground cover. In the context of North America, 30-plus million strong herds of bison once roamed the Great Plains from Canada to Mexico. They could drink a river dry and knock an unlucky train right off the tracks on the same day. When they migrated through an area, they practically destroyed it with their hoof action. But they left, and they wouldn't return for months. These majestic animals had almost been eradicated by frontiersmen. By 1884, there were only around 325 wild bison left. Now in 23, through conservation efforts, they number over 500,000. Though we might never see 30 million bison roaming the Great Plains again, ambitious projects like the American Prairie Reserve seek inventive solutions to steward abundant national resources through public-private partnerships like wildlife corridors on privately owned land. This kind of out-of-the-box thinking is exactly what Alan Savory advocates. To date, the Savory Institute's boats, uh, boasts of reversing the desertification of over 30 million acres through holistic management principles since 2009. To find out more, you can visit their website, um, White Oak Pastures, uh, which was Will Harris. They are actually actually a savory hub, as I said, um, which means that they're essentially a like an experiment of the Savory Institute of you know how much the regenerative agricultural principles are helping that area. So those are uh, the seven farmers that I really wanted you to know about. There's plenty more, um, but those are enough to get your toes wet. Um, these are great people. Um, if you can purchase food from one of them, that would be great. If you could even find a smaller farmer uh, to purchase from, that would also be cool. Uh, a more local person. These are these are big people, but hey, big farms need, need customers too. Um, a lot of these ship nationally, so you can you can find more about that on their website if that if that interests you. Uh, but just wanted to pass that along to you and wanted you to um, have that information on hand for whatever uh, whatever you need it for. Um, sorry that this uh, took like six weeks to get out. I uh, have been in the middle of a lot of job searching, and it just kind of fell on the back burner, and then I accidentally deleted some files on the computer, so that happened. Um, but I finally got everything together now, and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to work out now. <laughs> it's it's going to be able to actually come out every other week. Um, thank you so much for hanging with me, and uh, I'll catch up with you next time.
Keep voting with those forks, lunatics. Since we're all in this together, I'm supporting my brother and sister farmers with SEO content strategy as they migrate online. I help small to medium-sized farms somewhere on the direct-to-consumer trajectory be less busy, attract loyal customers, and sell unforgettable food. If that sounds like you, or you know someone who needs help, let me know. You can schedule a discovery call or just find more information at my website, www.agriculturecopywriting.com. Sound design was by the bodacious Brandon Nelson, artwork by the radical Rebecca Raven, and hosting, scriptwriting, editing, recording, and production by the ostentatious Austin Williams. See you again next time. Thank you.